Well, good morning. My name's Beck, if I haven't met you before, and welcome. And we come to this very strange story in a way, isn't it? This last chapter of uh, John's Gospel, the last of the encounters with the resurrected Jesus that he records. And spacing these stories out over several weeks is great because you get a sense of time passing. We're told actually that Jesus was around for 40 days after he rose from the dead. We've only had 14 so far since Easter. Seems like a long time ago to me now. Uh, But um, 40 days is a long time to process, isn't that what happened? To see Jesus, to speak with him. Last week we heard about Thomas and how he was able to have his doubts engaged with and addressed uh, face-to-face with Jesus. And then the next thing that the disciples need to do is work out, well, what is life going to look like now for us now that Jesus has risen? And so we come to this last chapter, which has some answers for us. It's a good chapter to see what happens to Peter's life, but also for ourselves when we ask ourselves, what difference does it make for us if we believe that Jesus is the risen Lord and still alive today? Well, let's do a little recap of who Peter is. He's lots of people's favourite disciple. He's one of the disciples that we know most about. We didn't know much about Mary or Thomas. But just in John's Gospel, this is what we find out. In chapter 1, we have uh, the account of Peter's first meeting with Jesus. His brother Andrew brings Peter to Jesus and Jesus says, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter, meaning rock. And Luke records that Jesus adds to this renaming, and on this rock I will build my church. Peter is singled out from the start. Then uh, Jesus knows Peter, but then when Peter gets to know him, after a while following him, seeing the amazing signs that Jesus performs, hearing him teach, Peter makes this profound declaration of faith. When others leave Jesus and Jesus asks if he's going to leave as well, he said, Lord, where else do we have to go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. He has a moment of great clarity. He recognises Jesus' unique identity and he throws everything he has in with those words. But even though he's 100% on board, he doesn't really understand what it means for Jesus to be this Holy One of God, the Messiah, that he must suffer and die. And so when you get to chapter 13, and Jesus comes to wash the disciples' feet as a sign of the service that he will do for them in his death, Uh, we get this kind of characteristic blend of conviction and confusion that you see often in Peter. He says to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replies, you do not realise what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. He's an all or nothing kind of guy, isn't he? He has great confidence in Jesus, and not only in Jesus, but also in himself. Because when Jesus starts to explain more about his upcoming death, Peter takes him up on it. He says, 
Lord, where are you going? Peter, Jesus replies, where I am going, you cannot follow, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answers, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And then the terrible nightmare begins. Peter goes to the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, and he is armed with a sword. And when Jesus is arrested, he fights back. We're told Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter doesn't understand. Jesus won't allow him to fight back. It is not the way that Jesus' victory was to be won. Peter continues to follow Jesus to his trial, but he becomes so afraid of what's happening, not only to Jesus, but of what might happen to him, I think, that he fulfills Jesus' prediction, doesn't he? He denies him three times, huddled around a fire. Three times he says he has nothing to do with that man. And then the rooster crows. Well, can you imagine what that moment was like for Peter? As he looked at Jesus and he hears the rooster crows, what would have been going through his mind? What has he done? And what will he do? Because this is the point where he not only denies Jesus, but he seems to abandon him as well. We don't hear anything more of him. None of the Gospels record that Peter is at the cross. He runs away. And once Jesus has died, what would be going through his mind? How could he have let Jesus down? What will he do now? Where will he go? He has nowhere else to go, does he? What a terrible burden to carry, all that guilt and shame on top of all the pain. And yet, chapter 20 reveals to us that Peter has rejoined the disciples for the Sabbath and that when Mary comes on the Sunday morning to say that the tomb is empty, he's off like a shot to the tomb. He's the first one in there, isn't he? He has recovered somewhat, it seems. And so we meet him again in chapter 21, which we've just heard read. So Jesus appears to his disciples on the Sea of Galilee this time, and the beloved, the one who is writing for us this account, and two other disciples. And Peter says, I'm going out to fish. And they say, okay, we'll go with you. And they go, and they fish all night, and they catch nothing. Well, what are the disciples supposed to do once Jesus has risen? The victory is won. And they've already seen Jesus more than once. And because John tells us this is the third time he's appeared to them, I think we can take it that Jesus is not with them constantly. He's appearing now and again. So what are they supposed to do? There's no script for this, is there? They're at a loose end. And what it looks like here is that they are going back to the old business. Isn't that right? 
going back to fishing. Isn't this what Jesus called them away from? In Matthew 14, we read, Jesus said to them, come and follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Is this what happens now that Christ is risen? Back to business as usual. The disciples have actually copped a lot of flack for this move from commentators over time. Hey, sh- what are they doing? I'm not sure how hard we need to be with them. Really not sure. But I think it is worth noticing that when they go out to fish, they have no success, do they? Their work apart from Jesus is unfruitful. And then Jesus steps in. He calls to them, friends, do you have any fish? No, they say. He says, throw your net out on the other side and you'll find some. And when they do, they're unable to haul the net in because there's so much fish. And John recognises it's Jesus. And he says, it's the Lord. Well, he might have recognised it was Jesus. It's only, we're told it's only 100 yards away. But I think it's the sign, don't you? And when Peter hears, it's the Lord, he throws his clothes on, this very Peter, and then jumps into the water. It's a kind of that impulsive, passionate Peter moment, isn't it? He jumps in the water. He's going to be first to Jesus again like he was first to the tomb. And um, I take it that this is a sign that Peter understands that he's okay with Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it? That Jesus still loves him despite the violence in the garden, his denial, his running away. Peter has confidence in his relationship with Jesus, which is pretty significant because usually when there's a rupture in relationship, when someone lets you down, especially by abandoning you or disowning you, that's very hard to fix, isn't it? Proverbs 18 says, making up with a friend you have offended is harder than breaking through a city wall. That can be true, but not so with Jesus. Well, finally, when they all land, all of them finally get to Jesus, they see that there's a fire and Jesus is already cooking breakfast. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't actually even need the fish, isn't it? Um, that he's provided for them, but he invites them to contribute. And then they sit down and they eat together. I love the line, none of them dared ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord by this time. So there's this sign, there's this Jesus welcoming them, providing them, and breaking bread, we're told, in the old ways. And then there's this other very potent reminder, there's a fire Because when was the last time Peter looked at Jesus across a fire? When the rooster crowed. And so Jesus turns to him and asks him a question. Simon Peter, do you love me? He doesn't just ask it once, he asks it three times. And Peter is hurt by this. Why is Peter hurt? Well, he's hurt, isn't he? Because Jesus is deliberately reminding him of his denial of him. And Peter really doesn't want to go there. It hurts him to remember. It's shameful for him. Doesn't Jesus understand? Doesn't he know how terrible he feels about this? 
Can't Jesus see that he's sorry, that he loves him? Yes, he loves him. He's back on board with the other disciples. He wants to resume the relationship. He's jumping out of the boat, just like old times. He's raring to go. He's committed. He's solid. He's good. Well, why is it necessary? Is Jesus being harsh here? Is this some kind of shaming Jesus thinks he needs to put Peter through? He's definitely opening up the wound, isn't he? Well, let's think it through a little bit. Certainly Jesus is insisting that, yes, Peter needs to address what's happened with him. But despite the inevitable pain that it causes Peter, everything that Jesus does here speaks of his love for him. He comes to him. He provides for him. He welcomes him. He feeds him. He never accuses him of anything. He doesn't put him down. He asks a simple question. And the question is a gracious question because the question is inviting Peter to say the thing that really matters most to him. That yes, indeed, he does love Jesus. And Jesus invites him to say it three times, to heal the wound of those three denials. Jesus is kind. Even though it is painful for Peter, it is a time of restoration for him. You know, I hope that, like Peter, we have a basic confidence that no matter what, our sins can be forgiven, that Jesus' love is unconditional. It's not like the way we love and interact, perhaps, with each other, uh, that, Peter, that we can be like Peter and have a kind of robust conscience. That's a healthy thing for a Christian to develop when we understand the good news of the gospel. But there's a danger There's a danger, especially in our culture, when there are so many things that distract us from the unpleasantness of our sin and from our shame. If we fall into the trap of ignoring our sins or pretending that they don't matter much, we'll be kidding ourselves. We can't hide our failures from God. Jesus knew Peter was going to deny him before he even did it, remember. If we try and hide our failures from God, It will cause a rift. We'll start to compartmentalise parts of our lives. We'll avoid praying. We might behave in the right way for a time, but underneath there'll be unfinished business. And it doesn't feel good. And it keeps us awake at night. And I say this because I know it myself. We will stagnate and drift. Jesus will become an idea and not a living person. So it's important to go through this kind of process that Peter went through. A painful process of examining our sin and shame before Jesus, but do it like this and remember Jesus like this, loving, inviting, wanting not to punish and shame, but to forgive and restore us. So if we believe that Jesus is risen and alive today, Here's the main difference. I'm just going to, we're going to explore a little bit further. We're not nearly finished, sorry. (laughs) We will have a dynamic relationship with him. If Jesus is alive today, we have a dynamic relationship with him. One of ongoing repentance and love expressed to him on our part 
and one of forgiveness and ongoing love for us on his. But that's not all, because if we do this and we believe that Jesus is alive, it will not be back to business for us. We should expect our lives to follow then in the pattern of Jesus somehow. Because do you notice that when Jesus asked this question to Peter, and Peter says he loves him, Jesus responds by commissioning him? That's a bit strange, but very kind. Jesus could have patronised him, couldn't he? He could have said, well, good, I'm glad to hear it. You've been a failure. You need to start at the beginning again. Go back now. We need to do the training again. And Jesus says, good, take care of my sheep. Feed my lambs. Look after my flock. Jesus entrusts him with his own work. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and they know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father and I give my life for the sheep. Peter is a special case. Yeah, you know, he was singled out at the beginning. But Jesus invites us all to participate in his work. It will look different for each of us. But when we look at Peter, we see this is what Jesus does. He says, come. And the great thing about Peter's commissioning is that it's done in light of his sin and shame, actually. No one deserves to be the shepherd of God's people except Jesus himself. And yet he calls people who are very much works in progress to join him. Loving Jesus is the prerequisite, not perfection. Earlier in John 10, before he said, I am the good shepherd, Jesus spoke to some very impressive people, very rich people with status, religious leaders of the day, who ended up rejecting him. And he said to them, very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. Jesus said again to them, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. Jesus is not just the shepherd, he's also the gate. If anyone would do Jesus' work, they have to come by him. Outward appearances of goodness or religiosity or popularity, whatever the thing is that we find impressive, won't do. Only the answer to this question matters. Do you love Jesus? Well, we see in this story that Peter is actually galvanised, I think, by this encounter with Jesus around the fire. Maybe there were times that he would feel that same fear later as he went out to shepherd, be the shepherd that Jesus called him to be. The same fear for life and reputation, but we never hear about that. Quite the opposite, actually. In Acts, we see Peter becomes this bold, courageous man proclaiming the gospel of Jesus in the face of suffering and persecution. He becomes the kind of shepherd that would lay his life down for the sheep. And Jesus predicted he would do this in this very passage. You see, he says, Truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you 
and lead you where you do not want to go, predicting the kind of death that Peter would face. The early church writer, Hippolytus, wrote this. Peter preached the gospel in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Britannia and Italy and Asia and afterwards was crucified by Nero in Rome with his head downward as he had himself desired to suffer in that matter. The thought is that Peter didn't see himself worthy of being crucified as Jesus was and asked to be crucified upside down, which I still think is a very Peter moment, that passionate, impulsive Peter right to the end. And somehow he had changed from that fearful man to this. And I think it started on the beach that morning. He understood uh, what Jesus was saying about his death to come. We know that because um, he asks a question about John. He hears it, but he doesn't avoid it. And that is because he's been restored by the resurrected Jesus. You see, he gets it. If he follows in the footsteps of the resurrected Jesus, what can possibly harm him now? Jesus is risen. Not even death can harm him now. Well, Peter accepts his fate, but true to form, he's got more questions. And uh, he says, "Um, what about that guy? He's pointing to John. If that's going to happen to me, what about him? And Jesus gives quite a long answer. I'm not going to go into it. It includes a rumour that's not true, John says. Um, But he says, uh, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is it to you? You must follow me. Basically, he says, uh, serving me doesn't result in the same outcome for everyone. Just get on and trust me. You see, Jesus is the only one who knows the future. His disciples join the mission and put their future in his hands. And no matter what, they are secure. Jesus' own crucifixion and resurrection are their pattern now. Death is not the end. No matter how or where or when, Jesus died and rose so his people could remain with him forever. You may not know the future, but in a sense you do. Jesus is our future. I don't want to sound glib about this. I don't want to romanticise the martyrdom of Peter or any of the other millions of Christians who have since died for professing faith in Jesus. And I don't want to trivialise the kind of anxieties that we have as Christians about being open about our faith in our neighbourhoods, our workplaces, our schools. No one relishes the thought of hardship or suffering for Jesus' sake. I don't want to underestimate the cost that there may be for some of us as we um, embrace that dynamic relationship with Jesus and see him transform our hearts and minds and invite us to do things differently to what we have before. There may be a cost. We may have to sacrifice things like wealth or security or popularity, even for some family, for the sake of belonging to Jesus and serving him. There are difficult decisions for parents to be made as they raise their kids counterculturally in a society that is increasingly hostile to Jesus. But we take each day at a time with Jesus and with our community here. 
I think Peter's question's a good one. His curiosity is ours too, isn't it? What might happen to us and to our church? What will happen if we allow this dynamic relationship with Jesus to shape our lives and shape our community? We don't know. Jesus knows. And it can be a little bit scary, but our future is sure in him. I found it interesting. I'm going to finish with this. Um, I was reading Bernard Salt's column yesterday in The Australian, and he talked about how he used to be a Catholic. He wasn't anymore. And he wondered what was happening to our society now that most people don't believe in God. And he said... um, that over the years, before perhaps as I've learned more about life and death and love, I feel my position about Christianity changing. Not that he's a believer, but he realises we're losing something. Let me read a bit. Between the last two censuses, there was a 45% increase in the proportion of Australians who said they had no religion. No religion is now our most powerful belief system. I am one of those non-believers, he says, but I am troubled by what I see as the evolution of an increasingly harsh, vengeful even, society, especially when dealing with perceived transgressors. Justice, of course, must be served and must be seen to be served, but society should not be above forgiveness. And forgiveness doesn't really elevate an individual, much less a community, unless it is difficult Justice contrition doesn't cultivate humility in a, transgressor, in a transgressor unless it is genuine and heartfelt. Probably the thing at the core of what will change and what our community has to offer as we live out this dynamic relationship with Jesus is the very thing we see Jesus do for Peter here in this passage, isn't it? Know and offer true forgiveness and reconciliation. And model that. Show what that looks like, even when it's very difficult. I thought this was an incredibly insightful thing. Um, I think it's scary too, isn't it? If actually that's something we're losing. Might be something to think about. Uh, Is our culture forgetting how to forgive? Are we more angry and vengeful than ever? What will that mean? for us, but what do we have to offer? The living Jesus is still the answer for the people around us and for one another. Let's not be afraid, or if we are, let's take the fear to God with the shame and ask him to help us because Jesus is risen, he is powerful, he is loving, he's trustworthy. Let's ask him to help us believe that and to follow him today. Let's pray. A loving Lord God, you are not like us. You are all love and patience and forgiveness with us. Help us to trust you with our own lives, but also with each other, with this church. We thank you for Peter, for his life, for the way that he and the other disciples began your church after you rose again. And we pray that we might continue to model your grace and forgiveness to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.